Well, who do you think look, is more looking forward to summer vacation, us or Nikola Jokic? <laughs> Last night, yeah. he was so funny after the NBA Finals ended. I think maybe Jokic. He seemed like he was uh, out. It's a, it's a compelling case study. The business angle here on Nuana's Now. Justin Angle joining us here on this Tuesday, coming to you from Studio 49 down here early morning on your Tuesday uh, at the uh, Gallagher Business Building here on the University of Montana campus. Last night, the Nuggets complete their gentleman's sweep in the NBA Finals. Is that what a five-game yeah, closeout is called, yeah. a gentleman's sweep? Yeah, and it's amazing how much they just laid the hammer down because yeah. Miami stole game two in Denver, and everybody's like, ooh, this might be a series, and then not so much. They just won three in a row, and it, it's a great story for a lot of different reasons. We'll get into it throughout the uh, the uh, segment here, but Jokic... First of all, uh, it's such an interesting case study because he does have real humility. He shook hands with every single Heat yeah. player and coach before he started celebrating. But he also has this, I don't even think it's intentional. I think it's just his way of being. He's so understated, but you could also tell that he has uh, a much more broad priorities than just basketball. But I thought that the man was summed up so much last night in the postgame celebration. He held his child the whole time and the child was just the calmest child ever yeah she's just looking around never throwing a fit never crying and i'm like wow you're just like your dad you're just the coolest Same customer disposition. ever yeah <laughs> but then at the end uh, somebody asked him you know what he, what he thought he said hey we got the job done now it's time to go home then somebody asked him about the parade and he says what when's the parade well, i have to go home man yeah. i gotta go back to serbia i just he's just such an interesting character he's so different than so many of these american stars i think that's why it's hard for a lot of nba fans to wrap their mind around what nikola jokic really is yeah he, he, we have not figured out how to how to market this guy at all right and, and right. i think maybe that is the answer like he is not he certainly doesn't fit the mold of a traditional marketing asset, right? Like he has no interest in cultivating a persona. Not trying to make um, a brand. Not trying to make a brand. He just wants to play basketball well and then do other stuff and doesn't want us to really know about the other stuff. It's not like he's being, um, you know, intentionally private about those other things. It, it, he just has no interest in engaging with, with the media to promote himself. And it's not out of hostility. I mean, sometimes there's a story there, right? Like sure. when, when Jordan decided to not talk to the media for a couple right, of months right, or a couple right. of weeks or whatever it was, like that was the story. And, and it was kind of this adversarial thing or like Bill Belichick, how he would trash the, you know, the reporters during the, the, the press conferences. Jokic doesn't do any of that. He just, it's like, I play basketball. That's about it. There's something inherently uh, like private about just like the persona of people that come from Eastern Europe too, right? There's such a cultural thing there, right? He's from Serbia. It just seems like the walk softly and carry a big stick is just such a part of like the culture from that part of the world too. It could be. And I, and I think, you know, that part of the world has been through so much For sure. transition, so much um, just hard life experiences. And, you know, who knows, we might be sort of romanticizing this a little bit, but you know, the, the the basketball could very well be just a game for him. For sure. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of stories of, of 
professional athletes from uh, tough upbringings sure. across the, the whole world. And I, I do think that sometimes having a tough upbringing actually does ignite you into becoming this driven professional athlete. Um, but I mean, Serbia has gone through a, a ton and it's, it's just very interesting. We're going to come back to this because actually two of the greatest athletes on the planet Earth right now are both from Serbia. Right. And uh, neither one gets the fanfare I think they deserve. Maybe that changes now that uh, Nikola Jokic leads the Denver Nuggets to their first ever NBA championship. But we'll come back to the NBA Finals here in just a minute. But uh, you and I, uh, and I guess originally Ryan Tutel, have been doing this here segment, I think, for close to four years it's now. coming up on that, yeah. And you and I have been doing it for more than two, just the two of us. And uh, probably the gift that has never stopped giving in terms of the overlay between business and sports is the emergence of and the existence of the Live Golf Tour. <laughs> well, well yeah. I think that they've stolen our, our fodder now because now the Live and the PGA is merged. We're going to have plenty to talk about as this merger continues. But just uh, your initial reaction to the news last week, th- this was jaw-dropping to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I certainly was shocked by it. I think my initial kind of hot take to you was there must be something really damning in Discovery um, that the PGA Tour did not want to come out, right, in this lawsuit that they had filed. For sure. And were pursuing against Liv and some of the other parties involved. Um, you know, that that often happens in these lawsuits. Like, the, the parties involved realize, like, oh, yeah, this discovery process could reveal X, Y, and Z and put our people under oath. And the scope of a deposition is often beyond the scope of what um, happens in a lot, what, you know, what can be in, in the courtroom, but it gets entered into discovery in the deposition. So, yeah, that could be a problem. And, and the thing that the, the sort of... Other takeaway for me is this guy Jay Moynihan. Uh-huh. Like, there's the president of the PGA. Yeah, like I, I would expect. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't make it through this week without being. He probably won't be fired in terms of the storyline to the media. He'll probably like exit and spike the football. Like he yeah. created this this deal to sustain golf, but but in reality, I mean, how could any PGA player who stayed in the PGA Tour and turned down all that money, how could they ever trust him again? How could he ever engage in a negotiation in good faith and hold any trust in a negotiation? I just think like he is, he's kind of the the textbook um, hypocrite in this in this story and and it's 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 hard to imagine him continuing in that role. The business angle, Justin Angle joined us here on Nuanas now. Presented by Blackfoot Communications. Visit goblackfoot.com to see how Blackfoot can help you and your small business grow. Yeah, Monahan, uh, he, w- when Liv first emerged, he basically wrote this scathing letter saying, if anybody that's involved in the PGA touches this thing, you are banned for life. You will never play professional yep. golf again. It is over for you. Then all these guys jumped. Then the PGA basically uh, folds multiple times in standing up for these things. Let's all the live guys start playing in the majors that they uh, sort of uh, oversee. And then in the meantime, guys like Rory McIlroy and John Rahm are out there as the face of the PGA trumpeting this cause saying, we're not going to the live. And then it all falls apart. I mean, if I was Rory McIlroy, I would be so mad. Absolutely. I, w- I would be so furious yep. at this guy. Yeah. And you build that objection to going with live on some of these 
principles of human rights, right? That was yeah, what they right. were building their argument around, that the Saudi money was tainted and, and so forth and way, wrapping themselves up in, in, in the flag and, and all these moral principles. And at the end of the day, none of that mattered to Monaghan, you know, and, and these other athletes like Arroyo McElroy, who knows how much, you know, these virtues are important to him. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but he chose to kind of, he and others chose to position themselves as leaders of the PGA players based on those virtues. And when those get uncovered as meaning nothing, I mean, that has to have deep personal resonance with these folks. And I don't think they could engage in any kind of good faith negotiation again with Monahan. I do find it interesting. We often debate what what does the history of the game, whether no matter what game it is, how much does that resonate with modern athletes? I did find it fascinating that some of the guys that jumped to the live Brooks Kepka being sort of the leader of them, he had instant regrets, not because of the money, but because he's like, well, will I be considered within the history of the game? Yeah. He, you know, he he placed second at the Masters and then won the PGA Championship, and he wasn't ranked in the top 900 in the world golf rankings because live players weren't included. That's about to change swiftly, but I did find it striking that these guys, even with the the exorbitant paychecks, they're thinking, oh, well, where, how is this going to actually affect my legacy? It actually did humanize them to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's makes sense. An individual sport like golf, and then you've got these major tournaments that are kind of. You know, I I think, as we've talked about in this segment, not many people knew until this emergence of the Live Tour came about that those major championships weren't owned by the PGA, right? There were these independent entities and and they didn't, they, they weren't under the management or under the control of the PGA. And so when it comes to legacy, yeah, there, there's probably a, a question for those guys that went to Live, like, Am I going to be relevant enough? Right. And will this new playing, you know, these new events on the live tour that I've committed to prepare me in such a way that I can compete at at the, at the major events with the, with the guys on the, on the, on the other, on the other tour. Um, It's nice to see in some sense that those things matter to these guys. I mean, they kind of correlate with the money as well, but um Kepka, Kepka too, like he came onto the scene fast and furious and then kind of came back down to earth a little bit. So, and this, this sort of move to live corresponded with questions of, well, can can he win majors again? So that question of legacy seemed like it, it made some sense. The business angles, the overlay between business and sports, do this a couple times a month here on Nuanas Now. A really big question for you here. The the main source of controversy over this is where the with the live tour existing and now the merger with the PGA is where the money comes from, and um, we've seen this now across the board in professional sports. The, the Saudi Arabian royal family has made a huge investment into sports for better or worse in a lot of different ways, but we also saw with the Nuggets winning the championship last night, Stan Kroenke and the Kroenke Sports and Entertainment Group they are basically. Uh, in possession of almost every major pro sports trophy over mm-hmm. the last couple of years. I mean, this investment group owns the Los Angeles Rams. They own the Arsenal of the uh, English Premier League. They own the Denver Nuggets. They own the Colorado Avalanche. They own the Colorado Rapids of Major League Soccer. They own the Colorado Mammoth, who's the Major, major League Lacrosse champions. Uh, and they own all these different things. 
what are the perils or drawbacks to having less owners and less controllers throughout the world of pro sports? Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Um, you know, monopoly power in general, uh, you know, gives customers less control over price, right? Like the, the, the supply is controlled by one entity and they can set prices essentially and consumers have no choice where to go in the marketplace. We see that with utilities in many ways like cable providers, et cetera. Um, so you as a consumer have little control over over the, the product and the pricing and the experience and and so forth. But in sports, I, I, I'm not so sure it works in the same way. Right. Um, fewer owners, it consolidates power, but these sports leagues in general sort of operate as monopolies already. And that's why this was such a fascinating deal. You could, as a business professor, you could teach a business class on antitrust and monopolies through the lens of the live and the PGA. Like what happens when a nonprofit has a monopoly over a certain sector of business and then a for-profit competitor rises up and then the, the court case that comes from that, I mean, it's almost like a business law class. Yeah. And, and the law is, I, I, it, it's complicated here because you've got entities that span geographies, right? It's not just um, United States law, it's international law and, and what laws apply and what principles apply and what is a nonprofit in this world when you're talking about like a a, a quasi-government entity like the Live Tour. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and then, you know, the where the money comes from question, I think muddies the waters. Whether or not Live needs to be profitable is kind of irrelevant right. in terms of, you know, whether it's legal or not, right? right. Um and then these sports leagues, they kind of have like it's it's been talked about a lot, like Major League Baseball is the antitrust exemption and some of the other leagues as well. And so, you know, the leagues themselves kind of have monopoly power or historically have had monopoly power. And then within the leagues, should the owners can be considered competitors or should they be considered colluders? Right. Uh, or collaborators is probably the better word. So there, there's some strange dynamics in these markets that the markets aren't aren't efficient and don't don't um, some of the normal rules of monopoly and economics don't apply in the same ways in professional sports. Well, it is so interesting when some of this stuff trickles into like the larger world. Like when Al Davis tried to move the Raiders initially, I and mean, that was one of the landmark antitrust lawsuits in the history of America. I mean, it was precedent setting, and uh, he had eventually won and was able to move the the Raiders. So. I don't know. This is going to be interesting, uh, to say the least, to see how uh, it all plays out. I I still just uh, I, I grapple with... I actually thought if the PGA Tour and Live were to exist as opposed entities, that that in certain ways would be the best thing ever for golf. Because it gives you character building. Sure. It gives you the good guys and the bad guys. That's what America loves. I just got done watching the American Gladiators documentary, which, by the way, you should watch. If you, It's like three and a half hours long. Okay. But, uh, the first half is like a trip down nostalgia lane, and the second half is like, what is this? is like some crazy mystery of who created this thing. It's a, it takes a weird turn, but it's very good. Okay. Um, but, I mean, there was a moment in time, you know, early 80s through like, I guess I'd say mid to late 1990s, where 
the dichotomy of good and evil was basically the number one goal of all entertainment, sports or otherwise, in America. And this had an opportunity to sort of have that, for better or worse, for the PGA and the Live. So I'm so interested to see how they move forward now uh, after they've merged. Like, what emerges as the priorities? On one hand, I think the guy's argument that they're going to get paid rather than having to earn their money is good for sort of the stability of the sport, but it takes away a lot of the the chance of the sport. There's just a lot here. I'm so interested to see what they actually say for a tangible agreement moving forward. Are they going to... Reinstitute cuts or not? You know, can you wear pants right. or in shorts or not? You know, there's just a lot <laughs> the of big things. issues, right? There's just a lot of things here. Yeah, you know, I'm going to take the other side of the the palace intrigue argument, but I, I'm not so sure the PGA versus Live thing was ultimately good for golf in the sense that I, I don't know how many regular viewers of golf actually cared. They care about the players and probably don't care so much about the leagues from which they sure. come and, and so forth. And that sort of stuff is a bit of a distraction and gets in the way, particularly when it's, you know, you could frame it as good versus evil, but like players don't want to be, no exist in that dichotomy. I they think, don't want to have to choose and I they don't want virtue to come into that. I think some of the, that was accentuated by the fact that two of the primary stars that went to the live already have villainous personalities. Oh, absolutely. That was Bro- a big part of it. Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson both don't really care what anybody thinks. Yeah. They, they both are very brash and cocky, and they're not hiding that. They're not trying to explain away their arrogance. Brooks Kepka is fully arrogant. He fully knows that he does not care. So I do. Th- I just think, like, sort of, I, I don't know. I, I always harken back to professional wrestling. It, is the NWO actually evil? No. But when Hulk Hogan is pretending to be the evil man in the NWO, sure. it's endlessly yeah. entertaining. That Brooks, Brooks Kepka was very much uh, wearing the black mask, as as uh, Chuck Klosterman would say. Yeah, and that worked for a period of time. But I think its shelf life is probably limited. Right. right. Like ultimately, it it will like Brooks Kepka could play the villain for a period of time, but if he's not winning tournaments right, totally. and not performing, it doesn't matter how villainous he, he is. People just don't care anymore. Um, you know, back to this this monopoly thing, I mean, I've been thinking about the Stan Kroenke ownership group. Yeah. And, you know, the question I ask from a business perspective is what set of skills, what set of business expertise can sort of cross boundaries across sports yes. to enable this type of success. Because right. it, is, it is a unique form of success across different sports oh, categories. For sure. so, I mean, to put this in perspective, since this Crocky Entertainment Group rose to prominence, the Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl two years ago. Yep. The uh, Colorado Avalanche have won two Stanley Cups since this. they took over in, I think, 2017. So two out of the last six, basically. The Denver Nuggets won their first NBA championship ever, mm-hmm. and they've been a franchise for 47 years. The Colorado Rapids made a run in the Major League uh, Soccer playoffs. The Colorado Mammoth are the defending national lacrosse champions. So they, they've had... Uh, peak success just in the last two years in four major pro sports. Yeah, and it's not through some new approach to marketing the franchises and the personalities within those franchises. We were just talking about Jokic. Like, he's not somebody to build a marketing campaign around. So, to me, it's less about, like, how they're you know, uniquely generating revenue. It's like, how are they uniquely winning and is it so, they figured out some sort of method of talent evaluation that the competitors haven't figured out and have been able to deploy that methodology across different, uh, 
you know, different franchises and different sports? I don't know, but there, that therein lies an interesting question to me is like, what is the kind of core competence that fuels these? It, it, first of all, is there a core competence or a core unique set of skills that allows these various franchises to operationalize success across very different sports and very different competitive landscapes and different uh, financial markets as well. Well, it also helps to be married into the Walton family fortune. The, the founding family of Walmart is, you know, Ann Walton is uh, Stan Kroenke's wife. So having access to that sort of uh, capital also helps in, in terms of de- defining any sort of strategy. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree with that premise. However, that marriage has been you know, they were married in 1974. Well, right, so they've they, been married for 50 years. Right, right. so this isn't an overnight <laughs> success. They've been totally. at it for a while. Totally. And sure, access to capital is a big driver of success in, in a ton of businesses. But, you know, there's plenty of rich people with endless amounts of money for sure. to spend on I mean, athletes. Dan Snyder's one of the richest people in the world, and he has been the worst pro sports owner in the history of America. Absolutely. So money doesn't <laughs> necessarily equate to success. And these franchises, too, like they've, you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs of all of them across all these different sports, but they're not built on the traditional superstars. Like even mm-hmm. the Rams, I mean, they're not... Mm-hmm. Um, that, what's that defensive lineman's name? Who's, Aaron Donald. Yeah, I mean yeah. he's he's a superstar, sure. but the rest of the team is not. Um, it's not built around the traditional sure. superstars that have defined franchises in, in major markets for a long, long time. So th- I think they're doing it a different way. How they're doing it, I, I don't know yet. And there hasn't been much reporting on 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 how it's done because the the Cronky group is notoriously quiet. They don't engage with the media all that much. The, the, the tie that binds her, the business angle here on Duana's now, um, I, I do think that they've made an, ex- an incredible investment in coaches. We'll see what happens with Michael Malone with the Denver Nuggets now that he has won a championship. I think he was, uh, you know, people in NBA circles know him as a very good coach, but I don't think he's like a headliner type coach. But yeah. the, the, the sort of the tie that binds, I mean, the Arsenal have one of the most premier coaches in all of pro soccer. Uh, the Denver Nuggets, or excuse me, the Denver Broncos just hired Sean Payton, who's certainly one of the most well-renowned um head coaches in sports. Yep. The Rams, Sean McVay is the highest paid coach in football history. So they're investing in in people in terms of the leadership of the team. Maybe that's something that binds. I don't know. This is something to uh, further research. But And they're not, outside of Peyton, they're not legacy coaches right, as well. They're right, not like right, the right. same recirculated personalities that go from head coach to coordinator to head coach. They're, they're new folks. Absolutely. Uh, To circle back around, another common theme here on the business angle has been sort of the evolution of media and media rights and Mm -hmm. streaming and and broadcasting and all that. But from a a print perspective, we have had a lot of debate on sort of the here and now and what the future of all of that is. There's been a couple startups that have been great disruptors in the sports writing industry uh, in a positive fashion. But one of those uh, basically out-evolved itself and already uh, has completely changed, and it's only been around for, uh, you know, 10 or less years. The Athletic uh, recently finalized a transaction to sell basically to the New York Times company. And I loved the idea of The Athletic. It is very similar to our idea at Skyline Sports, where we have uh, a dual revenue stream with a high priority on premium content for subscribers. And then some, I don't even, I wouldn't even go as far as to say advertising as much as some sponsors spliced in. 
it, it was crazy to watch it all evolve. They did this crazy move where they went and hired all these premier sports writers. They sort of cut the legs off of the industry as a whole and and used that to their advantage. Then they built up this massive audience. They had like three million subscribers. Yeah. And uh, then, then they basically pumped a bunch of money into it and then dumped it to somebody else. And there was massive layoffs over the last couple of days. For everything that they stood for, they completely went away from, and uh, and they took the paycheck, and it, it was it was hard to watch. I'm not saying it's bad business. I actually think it's probably good business. It's just hard to reconcile. So I guess my broad question for you: We don't have to get into the the weeds completely on the future of journalism and the, the valor that comes with journalism and the ethics and all that sort of stuff. But it, it does seem increasingly challenging in this day and age to run a journalism entity that prioritizes journalism and also stays aligned with what you want your business and business development and business growth to be. Therein lies the question, right? How, exactly. What is the business model for journalism? It's exactly. certainly changed. And, you know, I don't think journalism has quite figured out um, how, how to monetize itself, particularly in, in the internet age. I mean, it's always been, it seems like the advertising model is the just the, the original sin yep. of journalism, yep. and and what are the alternatives? Is it some giant deep-pocketed um, benefactor? You know, you look at the Washington Post, and the Washington Post has done really amazing work under Jeff Bezos, right? Yep. Um, look at Twitter and Elon Musk. Twitter's a media company. Could you say the same thing there? Unclear. Unclear. Right. So back to your question about monopoly. If you put the power of you know, a single individual or a small number of people with deep pockets in control of these media organizations. Are you going to get quality journalism? You could. And we live in this age where people tend to, um, you know, select informa- their information sources according to their worldview. Right. Right. And so we sort our media choices based on what we believe. We want to hear things that we agree with. Yep. And so the influence of individual owners becomes I think greater in that in that sense because they're going to um, they're going to abide by uh, supply demand principles and that that's going to affect the coverage it's it, we go through this all the time at Skyline sports and here at ESPN radio too because if you're running a, a purely a business and your main objectives are business oriented then you're always going to go you're going to make decisions that go in the face of holding up this ethos or this sort of romanticized version of what journalism should be. And I just, I don't know what the, what the answer is. I really don't. I, I don't either. And I don't think many, you know, I think like, take a look at, at Substack, right? That's yeah. emerged yep. as kind of this hot new delivery mechanism. And in some ways it's great. It's democratizing, right? An individual reporter can put his or her stuff out there and attract subscribers. In some ways, I think the subscriber model is the the sort of more ethically sound uh, or presents fewer con- uh, conflicts of interest than yep. does the advertising model. Yep. Yet at the same time, it does sort of continue that trend I mentioned earlier where you know people your audience selects for the perspective that you're getting from the writer and if it's an individual writer typically all you get is that one person's perspective you know there are some entities that are 
changing that Substack model. Like you look at what Barry Weiss is doing at the Free Press. I don't know if you've looked at her stuff, but she was a columnist at the New York Times. She laughed because her sort of strain of liberalism was not considered liberal enough for the other columnists there at the New York Times. Amazing. And now she has this kind of platform where she sort of gives platform to other um, wayward souls of journalism. You could, you could, you could maybe classify them that way. And people seem to be buying into it. She's one of the top, her, her entity is one of the top revenue, revenue earners on the free, on Substack. So yeah, how this sorts out, I, I don't know. We're kind of living through it, but you know, if we want to continue to, as citizens have access to quality reporting that, you know, whatever speaks truth to power or whatever yep, other yep. kind of virtue you want to bring into it, then we're going to have to figure out ways that it can be funded. And maybe as consumers, we need to be more willing to pay for it. I, I don't exactly know how it plays out, but it's, it's, it's sort of at a breaking point. Well, I think we want, we need to be able to absorb diametric viewpoints, the, uh, the viewpoints that are opposed to what we be, we already believe. Humans have an entrenched bias, and that's been accentuated by the society and culture that we live in. Yeah. Uh, the business angle presented by Blackfoot Communications. Blackfoot's going to be making the rounds all summer long. They'll be uh, stopping in various rural communities around Montana to explain to you how their fiber networking works and uh, how they're networking overall, how they can help you, your small business, and your small community grow. Visit goblackfoot.com to see how uh, they can help you and your small business. I listened to this fascinating lecture at City Club Missoula um, a couple weeks, I guess a couple months ago now, and they cited this study that said uh, partisan thinking and sort of the polarization that our country's going through Mm -hmm. is so tied to the demise of local news. If if, if, If rural communities like Missoula, Montana are consuming local news at a high level, there's very less, there's a much less chance they're going to be completely polarized on one side of the spectrum or the other. Way more people are going to be sort of in the middle. And I think this about this and this about this. But when you, the farther you get away and the more you nationalize it, then the more we sort of rally on black and white, you know, elephants and donkeys, whatever it might be. And uh, exactly. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about. I think that's one thing I would challenge everybody to do is consume all of it, not just what re-emphasizes your your already uh, standing beliefs, right? And that's really hard to do. As it's a so hard to do, right? To, to read things that make you uncomfortable, for sure. Listen to things that make you uncomfortable, um, and I do think you're right. Like the the decline of local news, the consolidation, and just the the, the disappearance of so many local outlets has really forced people toward national outlets and that further separates us because these national outlets push the national narratives and if everybody's kind of consuming that as their primary source of information that they they miss out on the coverage of the stuff that's actually affecting their lives in meaningful ways the stuff happening at the city hall at at city council all those sorts of things are much more influential on our daily lives than stuff happening in Washington. The last thing I'll say, but I could talk about this forever. Yeah. We will certainly talk about this again. But uh, the last thing I'll say on this is there's sort of this cultural phenomenon where if you're super engaged in your community that people think you're a weirdo, like that you're wearing a tinfoil hat or something. Like I go to all these clubs and stuff and a lot of my friends like make fun of me. Like, what are you doing? You trying to run for mayor? I'm like, no, yeah. I just want to know what's going on around me. I mean, 
I don't know if you noticed, if you own a house in Missoula, your property taxes go up a lot every year. I'd they like do. to know why. Yep. I'd want, I want somebody to explain to me why. If it's a valid reason, that's fine. If it's not, I'd like to argue about it. That's what, you know, having discourse is all about. So, um, being engaged in your community does not make you a weirdo or a conspiracy theorist. It just makes you a citizen. And I think that we need to get back to that uh, as well. But we're running out of time, but I have two more things for you. First of all, did you see the Norwegian guy who, yes. who ran the two mile yeah. to shatter the world? I mean, we, we've talked about the limits of, of human accomplishment. T- to put this in perspective, this guy ran four minutes flat in the first mile and then ran 353 on the second mile. Yeah. If you watch this video... There isn't even a field to be had. He's winning the race by like 250 yards. He broke the record by four and a half seconds. Uh, it's amazing the, the way we're pushing sort of the 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 uh, the limits of of human potential, especially in distance running and track and field. It is remarkable, and the world record 758 was set in 1997. I mean, it's, so it's, it's stood for a generation. Yeah. I mean, there's only been two people in the history of the world that run a sub-eight-minute, sub two-minute. And two so to take four seconds off is just like, that is, that's unbelievable. If you watch this video, this guy is running the last lap faster than most people you know could run, period. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he gets faster and faster toward the end, and, you know, and, and we are pushing the limits of human performance, or at least we frame it that way. But at the same time, like our ability to propel humans to greater and greater performances is increasing. We're learning more about training. We're learning more about nutrition. We're learning more about sleep, stress management, load management. All these things are advancing. And so that is going to, I mean, there are there are potentially theoretical limits of, of how fast a human can run over a certain distance. I'm sure there are, like a, a physicist would tell you those limits, but um I don't think we're there yet, and performances like that show us that there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of potential there that's still unexplored. It's so fascinating to me that it's happening so often in the distance races too, right? I mean, the women's fifteen hundred meters record also fell over the yep. weekend. I mean, three forty nine. That's just smoking fast. It's unbelievable, uh, and I, I do think though part of it is just the mental conception of doing it. Like you can conceive that you can do that, and so yeah. then you, if you can conceive it, you can do it. You can you can manifest that. Uh, last thing for you. Back around to Nikola Djokic. Uh, Novak Djokovic also won the French Open over the weekend. I I find this amazing that, I mean, the country of Serbia has like less people than the city I was just in. I was just in Chicago (laughs) on Sunday. I mean, Serbia has like 6.6 million people. It's crazy to me that two, seriously, you could argue that those two guys are two of like the five or six best athletes on the planet right now. It's remarkable. Uh, It's amazing that they come from such a small country. It's also remarkable to me that, I mean, Djokovic now... It has truly solidified his legacy as one of the great tennis players of all time. He had the misfortune of being in the exact same time period as Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, two of the, I mean, probably the two biggest stars in tennis history. He's never had a chance for his star to shine bright, but now he has this chance to sort of own it. I just find it interesting that these guys now have accomplishments that are objectively undeniable, and yet it still seems that people aren't glomming onto them like uh, uh, like they would a Federer or a Nadal or, or, you know, anybody that wins an NBA championship. Well, Federer and Nadal had this very um, interesting rivalry. Like For sure. Such different games, such different personas, and they were at their peak at pretty much the same time and doing it in different ways. Djokovic was sort of the foil to that story. Like, is this annoying guy that showed up and started beating these guys, interrupting their rivalry. <laughs> For sure. And he's never really had a natural rival. He's just been better than everybody else. And so, 
and not particularly um, interested in promoting himself as well. So he's another bit of an enigma there. And, you know, how much longer does he last? Does he last to a point where Federer and Nadal are completely out of the sport and maybe some young gun comes in and, and a new rivalry is established in the latter part of Djokovic's career? It, 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 we don't know. But, um, yeah, what we're seeing is is pretty amazing on the tennis court. 23 Grand Slam championships, which is now uh, alone as the all-time record more than Nadal or Federer or Sampras or Borg or any of the all-time greats. So uh, I hope people can appreciate it because uh, Djokovic is is uh, peerless. He's uh, he's unbelievable. Yeah. The business angle here on Nuan is now uh, every other Tuesday. It's presented by Blackfoot Communications. Appreciate Blackfoot for all their continued support of all the various things that we got going on here uh, at Nuan is now. Appreciate Justin Angle for giving us time uh, every couple weeks. These ever-evolving stories are fun, man. I can't wait to follow up on all this stuff. Yeah, me as well. Look forward to the next one.